All right, so I'm going to be honest with you. The like hour prior to getting up here to speak is like the worst part of the whole thing. It's literally like the, the tension of I'm ready to speak, now I just need to speak. It's, it's one of those things that's definitely a, a difficult thing for me to, uh, to handle. But I did want to say this. Normally I'm not up here, most of you know this. Uh, Ronnie's normally up here. He's spending some time with his family. We're excited for him to be able to do that. Um, normally I'd get up here and say something along the lines of, I'm much too young to be up here. Uh, but then uh, when I wake up in the morning and my joints start to pop and things start to hurt that I didn't realize hurt, I realize I'm definitely getting older. Uh, I also look at my 11-year-old son and realize that, uh, that, yeah, I am not as young as I once was. So I'm excited to be here. If, uh, if the, the good news, though, is this. I'm not as old as Ronnie or Eric. So I've, I've got that, that going for me. Ronnie would probably make a, a short joke at this point, but that's fine. All right, so in all seriousness, though, let's kind of shift gears uh, and kind of get right to it. So uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 10. That is where we're going to spend a bulk of our time today. Uh, in fact, that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But if you've heard me speak before, you know I'm going to be all over the place. But that is going to be our launching uh, text, our launching verse. So I'm excited to, to be able to share that with you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that blue paperback book in front of you is a Bible. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, that is the whole purpose of those being there. They're not just there to collect dust. So if you want to take that home with you, we'd love for you to have that. Uh, that is the same version that I'll be reading out of. I know that's one thing that sometimes uh, can be frustrating is trying to figure out what version you're reading out of. I, read, I, I love the English Standard Version, and now Ronnie's finally uh, saw the light and switched over to it as well. So... I'm excited about that. But before we do that, let me pray real quick because, uh, man, anytime we kind of come before God's word and we start to unpack it, I think it's important for us to uh, be ready for that. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today. I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come before you. Uh, man, I'm excited about the passage that we're going to be in today uh, and kind of the things that you've taught me. Uh, Lord, I just ask that uh, what I'm about to uh, present uh, would be honoring to you and would be an extension of what and how you have sharpened and shaped me. Uh, throughout the process of preparing for this. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so I'll pick it up in verse 1. Uh, it will be up here, so if you want to read it from up there, that's perfectly fine. I know some people uh, like to look down and read, and some people like to look at their phone and read, and some people like to just stare at me while I read. So, uh, at Caesarea, there was a, na a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. After the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a, as a memorial before God. And now ascend men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner. Uh, that's a little bit confusing whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a, and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having relayed, uh, related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. 
In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed at, at, uh, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry at Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright man, a God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the Jewish nation, has directed, been, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what, he, what you have to say. So he invited them into, in as his guests. Then the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers uh, from Joppa accompanied him. As usual, I want to take a second to kind of set the stage uh, so that we can understand completely what's taking place here and why it is important. Within the narrative, we see two places mentioned. One is Caesarea and one is Joppa. I love how concerned the Bible is with the exact times and places. In fact, I've got a map of where these two places are, and I kind of want to show that real quick. So obviously you see Caesarea up there, and then you've got Joppa. You've got the Mediterranean Sea on the left, Jerusalem to the south. Uh, I kind of want you to see this because I think it's important to understand um, where it's at. Caesarea was a seaport city off the Mediterranean coast that was rebuilt by Herod the Great, named after Caesar Augustus. It was the center of the Roman administration of the province of Palestine and served as a showpiece of Roman culture. It even had a temple dedicated to Caesar. The Jewish people honestly hated Caesarea and would often speak of it as if it was no part of Judea. Caesarea was known for many things, a couple of which was an aqueduct. I've got a picture of that. It's a beautiful picture. You can go see these today. An aqueduct that would literally bring water in from 10 miles away, as well as an amphitheater. And that amphitheater uh, looks out over the Mediterranean Sea. How cool would it be to be sitting there and to listen to someone speak or to be watching you know, something take place? Uh, you'll see why Caesarea is significant for Christians today in our text, but it's also significant because excavations in the 1950s uncovered a Roman temple, a Roman temple, an amphitheater, the Hippodrome, the aqueduct, uh, and other Roman ruins. The one, that, the one thing that it uncovered that is of particular interest to Christians is that in 1961, they found an inscription that mentions Pontius Pilate. If you don't know who Pontius Pilate is, uh, man, go read about the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, he was the procurator at the time uh, in Judea during Jesus' crucifixion, and the Bible mentions him by name. So the fact that this mentions him by name right there in Caesarea and that they have uncovered this is incredibly important, uh, incredibly important for us. It's a gift, honestly. This is the first mention of Pilate that can be found and accurately dated within his lifetime to an area. Hey, can you bring back up that map real quick again? One more. So Caesarea and Joppa are about 30 miles apart. Just to give you an idea of how far away this is, uh, this would be about like walking over to Solomon. If you don't know where Solomon is, you go, you go uh, what, west on 70, you hit Abilene, Solomon's uh, not too far after that. So 
it's not really a small endeavor for them to, to get there. And I love being able to kind of see, okay, this isn't just a, a walk in the park. This isn't like getting in your car and heading over to Manhattan. Uh, for them, it, for them to, to go to one another, uh, it w- they had to be very intentional about doing so. All right. As you see, as you can see from the title of the sermon, I entitled it Breaking Barriers. When I did my first breakdown of this passage, of course, I saw things worth noting. But honestly, it was a struggle to put it together. Because this isn't the whole context or the whole story. This is the start of a bigger narrative. In fact, it's the biggest narrative in the whole book of Acts. The only way to understand what is happening and begin to apply it and understand it uh, is to understand the context of the passage. Ronnie's going to unpack what is going to happen uh, in this narrative next week, but I am tasked with kicking it off. Spoiler alert, the barrier that I'm talking about being broken is, is the Jews and the Gentiles coming together and God allowing them to be a part of uh, his community, his body. And so it's not just about the Jews anymore. The Gentiles are being brought into the, into the fold. We had Easter eggs about this uh, all over the Bible. In fact, Jesus' ministry mentions this multiple times. We had the woman at the well, which led, which led to a bunch of Samaritans, uh, people also hated by the Jews, being saved. We also had an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, just a couple chapters ago, who was saved, um, but now it's time to make this public. And perhaps one of the biggest Easter eggs of all to our story today and what was ultimately going to happen is found in Matthew chapter 8 when Jesus healed, healed a centurion's servant. It's kind of ironic, right, that Jesus heals this centurion servant, and right here we've got a centurion that's getting ready to show how the Gentiles will come into the fold. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me and say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said, said to this who followed him, truly, truly, I tell you, there is no one in Israel that I have found that has such faith as you. I tell you, many will come from the east and listen to this right here. I tell you, many will come from the east and from the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And And to the centurion, he said, go and let it be done for you as you have believed, and the servant was healed at that very moment. And so you have this picture that Jesus is painting, and although they may not understand it at the time, it says that the Jewish people are going to be the ones on the outside looking in, and that there's going to be many that come and dine at the table with these people in heaven. God is in the business of breaking down barriers through Jesus. Jews and Gentiles had much disdain for one another. How could you believe that there's only one God? How could you believe that there are many gods? This would have been a major shift in the hearts and minds of these people. In order for that barrier between Jew and Gentile to be broken, I think there are three other barriers he has to break through to get to this point in the lives of his people, and I think the same thing is true for us. The first one is kind of seen in the first eight verses when we look at the life of Cornelius, and that is through submission. Now, some of you might observe that this word is not actually in the passage, the word submission. The truth is, none of the words I'm going to be using today are in here. 
but you'll see, what, what, you, you'll see where they come from once we get into it. You have Cornelius, a centurion, praying to God. He sees an angel that calls him by name. I always think it's funny when people point this fact out like it's, it's no big deal. Like, like, Cornelius gets scared because an angel shows up. How many of you would not be scared if an angel showed up? And I don't know about you, but I kind of play scenarios out in my head. Uh, I pray a lot while I run. I love to run. Uh, I love to work out. And I've kind of thought, when I, when I read this, I thought, what if I was running and an angel appeared? What would that be like, you know? Uh, I'd probably end up getting hit by a car or pass out or something. I kind of picture those reels where, like, the guy's acting like a bush and he scares people as they walk by. Uh, I don't know if that's what it would be like, but I would probably be scared too. That's the point, okay? I'd be scared. Uh, go, but but he, says to, he says to Cornelius, go find Simon called Peter. He is, he is at Simon the Tanner's house who lives by the sea. Again, very specific names, very spe- specific places. Hey, go do this. Did any of you catch how Luke described Cornelius though in this passage? It said he is a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. If you take that and you kind of move forward to uh, what, what Ronnie's going to ultimately preach about next week, in verses 34 and 35, it says this, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, verse 35, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And this leads to a question that I think is 100% worth asking about Cornelius and has to do with our word submission. Did Cornelius already have right standing with God? Because it kind of sounds like he did. It's an interesting question to ask, but it has many different implications, and it's one that I found myself asking, with, asking as I was preparing for this. Why did God choose Cornelius if this was the situation that he was in? And for the sake of time, I won't get into all of uh, those implications or, or, uh, or even what I think the wrong answer is. Uh, John Piper spoke about this passage a while back, and I think one of the greatest arguments that he brought up to support uh, what I think is the right answer is this is that in the book of, throughout the whole book of, of Acts, um, you hear the gospel being proclaimed to who? The Jews, right? The Jews were considered the most God-fearing, most devout men, and yet at the end of each of them was a call to repent and believe. And so the truth about Cornelius is even though he was a God-fearing man, even though he gave money, even though he uh, prayed to God even, he did not have a saving relationship with Jesus. And so he was being used to usher in this kind of new beginning. And so what does Cornelius' standing with God have to do with us? One commentator pointed out this way about Cornelius. It said he would be called back then in what historians have called a God-fearer. C.K. Barrett said this about God-fears. What is important is that some Gentiles were attracted to Jewish ethics, theology, and worship but did not become proselytes, which for them meant they were uncircumcised. These people formed a, recognized, formed a recognized and valued element even in the synagogue community through their degree of religious attachment. And when I think about that idea, and when I think about Cornelius, I ask this question, how many God-fears are there that walk through our church doors every Sunday in churches all across America? People who love the Judeo-Christian ethic but have not have fully submitted their life to Christ. 
People, people who seem like genuinely good people, they may even give to the needy, they may even pray, but they are no more connected to God than Cornelius was. It sounds like these were, these, these were considered people, these people were considered to be good people even in that Jewish community, so much so that they were, uh, had right standing in the synagogues, could attend those and be part of the Jewish worship service. But even though these people are good people, and even though they might be God-fears, that does not give them right standing with God. Being a good person is not enough. If it was, Cornelius would not have needed Jesus. If it was, the Jews would not have needed Jesus. And if it was, you and I would not need Jesus. And so much like Peter and those that have gone before me, I want to say this. If you find yourself in such a place, repent and believe. In this passage, we see the beginnings of this barrier being broken between him and God. This word repentance is one we use in the church quite often and is often associated with this idea of submission. And honestly, I went back and forth on which word to use. This word repentance actually comes from the Greek word metanoia. Say that real quick with me, metanoia. Metanoia, metanoia. It is often defined as a turning from sin, but it actually just means change your mind. Now, I'm not talking about changing your mind on an opinion. I'm, not, I'm, t- I'm talking about a complete shift in the way you think about things. Think of the shift you see when you watch those videos of maybe a deaf person starting to be able to hear again for the first time. Right? A whole new world has been unlocked in their mind. Or think about an addict who finally is experiencing victory over that addiction and what that means for them. A whole new world is opening up for them. When we submit to Christ, things change. Do you have a moment in your life where things started to change for you when you followed Christ? Being honest with you, I remember mine. I had dated a girl in high school before I dated Annie and ultimately found out that she had been cheating on me. And honestly, I was, a, I was not a great guy at the time. And so I, had 100, I 100% had no business being in a relationship as it was. But I remember being incredibly hurt and frustrated by this experience. I harbored a lot of anger. I pushed a lot of people away. And honestly, I tried to find a lot of relief in partying and girls and other things of this world. And I came face to, but but I remember through Annie, I'd I'd met Annie in German class. I came face to face with Jesus and I didn't know what to do with him. Honestly, I tried to distance myself from him as much as possible. But I remember the moment the light bulb clicked on for me. It literally felt like something just, it it, it literally felt like that, what you see in a cartoon where a light bulb clicks on and just, you have this realization of something that you never had thought before. And the, the, the realization that I had is this, if God can forgive me and all of my shortcomings through Jesus, why can I not forgive this girl and what she did for me, what she did to me? And to be honest with you, since that moment, my life has never looked the same. It was an immediate shift in who I was, what I pursued, how I looked at things. My life changed completely through that experience. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The truth is no one denies this. Not even people that aren't in church. You ever heard someone say before, nobody's perfect? That's just a roundabout way saying everybody sins, right? But that's not the people, the, 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 the part of this that people have the most problem with because the truth is all have sinned. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. And then in 10, 9 through 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with one's heart one believes and is justified, and with one mouth he is confessed and he is saved. And so I'm going to say it again, repent and believe. If you find yourself in a position of being a God-fearer, but not truly a God-follower, repent and believe. Many here have made this decision, and praise God for that. You've had, you've had your, that mind shift, that realization that, that you are in the place of learning to walk, what it means to learn with, to walk with Christ. In this passage, you have Cornelius, but you also have Peter. And to be honest with you, Peter is one of my favorite apostles. Because the truth is, Peter screws up a lot. Peter screws up a lot. In fact, in Matthew 16, it says this, that Jesus called uh, Satan, uh, called Peter Satan because he tried to rebuke him for saying that he was going to die on the cross. Most of us know the fact that Peter swore he wouldn't deny Jesus, but of course, what did he go on to do? Denied him anyways, even after Jesus had told him. I read one article that listed it off and recorded that Peter had at least 14 different mistakes recorded in the Bible. Think about that. that. That's not everything that he messed up on. That is just the things that we know about. Okay? My life looks a lot like Peter's sometimes, right? I make mistakes, and so do all of you. And although Cornelius' journey is just the beginning for him, Peter has been on this road for a while, and that's where some of us find ourselves. So the first barrier was through submission and repentance and results in salvation. And the second word that I kind of want to bring up that we can pull out of this is from Peter's life, and that is that we need to pursue sanctification. That God breaks down barriers in us through sanctification. I think one of the best places to know what sanctification is or best ways to define it is through Romans 12 too. And it says this, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. For many, the relationship with Jesus starts with that light bulb flashing on. They see their sin, that metanoia, and they change their mind. But the journey is not over there. Like a plant busting through the soil after germination, it needs water and sun to continue its growth. In this passage, we see that he is breaking barriers and he is deepening Peter's understanding of what, it me, what his mission on earth really is. Peter is 30 miles away in Joppa and heads up to the rooftop to pray like many of you. Uh, uh, he, he heads up to the rooftop to pray and he ends up getting hungry. Right? Anybody hungry right now? I'm hungry all the time, so I'm hungry right now for sure. In fact, uh, I don't know why this came to my mind, but when I was preparing for this, where's Steve at? Steve, the first place I ever ate at in Junction City was Sirloin Stockade over by like the puppies are here place or whatever. Um, I, I feel like Sirloin Stockade is one of those places that you remember it better than it actually was. So I don't know if it's a bad thing we lost it or not, but I don't know why. That, we'll get back to this though. Uh, But uh, he, was, he was up on the rooftop, he was hungry, right? He was hungry, he, uh, he goes into a trance though. And he goes into this trance and he ends up seeing a sheet that comes down and within it were various types of animals. Um, and it says at the end of it, rise Peter, uh, kill and eat. Uh, honestly, I feel like this is like uh, my motto as a hunter, rise, kill and eat, right? That's one of my favorite things. Uh, I feel like I need that tattooed on my body somewhere. But uh, Peter is hungry, but the problem is that it says what kind of animals were in there. It says, and in it were all kinds of animals, and here's the key, reptiles and birds of the air. These animals to Jews were considered unclean. And Peter, 
doing Peter things, responds to a direct command from God by saying, uh, by no means, Lord, I have not eaten anything that is common or unclean. Uh, being on, completely honest with you, this response from Peter actually makes complete sense. For the entirety of Peter's life, he has tried everything he could to stay clean by not eating certain foods or putting himself into certain situations. In fact, Leviticus 20, uh, 24 through 25 says this, I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you, uh, I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the unclean and you shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I've set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me for I am the Lord and holy, uh, I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples uh, and you should be mine. These laws are, were meant to separate God's people from the rest of the world. In Peter's mind, if he eats these animals, He's breaking God's law and he is separating himself from God and putting himself in with those other people. This vision happens three times and of course Peter can't help but deny God three times. And all three times the vision was the same. God responded to him by saying, what God has made clean, do not make, all, do not make unclean. All of this leads to what I think is a pivotal moment in the narrative. Peter had a choice, continue to feed into the denial um, or was he going to continue to hold on what he felt like was right and something that he had practiced for his entire life? Or was he going to allow, allow God to break down this barrier and experience all that God had for him to possess? In verse 17 through 19, it says this about what Peter did. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house. Stood at the gate, they stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. The, the text says that Peter was inwardly perplexed and he pondered the vision. Wait a second, if God is telling me to do something, am I the one that is off here? The truth is, this shows growth. This is what sanctification is all about. I often talk about how the older I get and the more that I learn, the more I realize how much I really don't know or understand. And, the, and, and the, this journey for understanding, th this is the journey and the process for understanding what it means to truly follow Jesus. More often than not, it's, incredibly, it's an incredibly uncomfortable process, one that will leave you perplexed and pondering the words, uh, God, uh, the words of God had left Peter stunned and speechless and sometimes they will leave us in the same way. So how do we pursue sanctification? God's water and the sun are his spirit and even the church. The Bible is incredibly challenging to the way that we think. Read Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, and tell, tell me you're not challenged. One of the best descriptions of God's word sanctify, sanctifying us is found in four, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. When it comes to the church, when we're talking about how the church fits into this, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I have noticed a direct correlation between the time that I've spent in the word and the interaction that I've had with the body to my growth. Have you? 
What is the last thing that, that you have been challenged with through the Spirit and through God's Word? We know where this story is going to end up. So I'll ask you, is, uh, I'll ask you, I'll challenge you in the same way that Peter was challenged. Peter was challenged about the Gentiles, right? That's what ultimately is getting ready to happen. What God has made clean, do not call uncommon or unclean. When you think about other people, do you think about them the way God thinks about them? When you think about homeless people, do you think about them the way that God thinks about them? When you think about uh, illegal immigrants, do you think about them the way that God thinks about them? When you think about politicians or even an acting president, do you think about them the way God thinks about them? When you think about people in the LGBTQ uh, sphere, do you think about them the way that God thinks about them? The list could go on and on of people that we might disagree with, that we might not even get along with, but do we love them enough and understand that Jesus died for them too? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I love verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in, the world, but in order for the world to be saved through him. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. When was the last time you had a brother or sister ask what you've been reading in your Bible? Do you have relationships with people that see the innermost parts of who you are and try to help you pull out what is good and discard what is bad? Are you being sanctified? Are you being challenged through his spirit and through his word to grow? Do you have a church? Do you have the church around you that is helping you do this? We're, gonna get, we're, gonna, we're kinda getting into this last point here. And so we just have a few verses left, the last, the last three to be exact. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason you are coming? And they said, and they said Cornelius, a centurion, on, uh, an upright man, a God-fearing man, who is well-spoken of the Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The last, way in, the last barrier I think that he needs to break through in order for this to happen in this story and for us to fully experience his mission is through the, is through the barrier of obedience. Peter, in an act, of, an act of obedience, showing the metanoia he'd experienced and the growth he pursued, acted in obedience by not only obeying the Holy Spirit to greet them, but he even invited them into his home. It was much easier of an ask for Peter to invite Gentiles into his home as opposed to entering their home, but either way, it was gonna stretch him nonetheless. I can't help but wonder, um, I can't help but wonder that he was trying to, what he was trying to figure out and what, hold on a second, I'm messing this up. I can't help but wonder that he was trying to figure out what he would, hold on a second, I gotta read this again. Oh, I couldn't help, oh, this is right here. I, I couldn't, I can't, I can't help but wonder uh, that he was making this, if he was making this connection to what Jesus told him right before he left this earth. He said this to him, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you till the end of the age. When he was thinking all nations at the time, I wonder if he was thinking about the Gentiles. The emphasis is on all. Is this what he meant by it? When he, made, when he made this command, Peter was challenged by the very words of Jesus and then put in a position to act upon that challenge. 
It's amazing to me about how God orchestrates things and, and has continued to do so throughout history. So how does Peter's obedience relate to us? The Bible is full of commands, but it also makes the direct correlation between the Spirit working on us and us bearing fruit. John 15 says, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 8 in that same chapter says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And it kind of ends that little section with, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Being honest with you, I have never regretted obeying the Spirit's prompting on my life. I know my youth have heard this story before, and some of you may have heard it as well. But I remember eight to nine years ago, I was leaving our local Walmart, and I had the Spirit prompt me, and I'm just going to be honest with you, I did not obey that day. I was leaving Walmart, and a young uh, mom and her child were sitting there with her groceries, and for some reason, I felt like I needed to ask them if they needed anything. I remember having this split-second argument with myself, and I ended up in the car, and I drove home. That moment, eight to nine years later, still haunts me. What did I miss out on? What did she miss out on because I was unwilling to obey what the Spirit had prompted me to do? Obedience can be tough. It, it 100% can be tough. It was tough for Peter in this story, and it will be tough for you as well. Uh, last year, I had an opportunity to share a gospel, the gospel with a student that I developed a relationship with, and I remember having an internal battle with myself, much like that one I had before, but this time I was obedient. But to be honest with you, it was a battle. I was close to glossing over it and moving on and letting the next thing, uh, getting to the next thing, but the Spirit won that day. I wish it was always that way. Can you look at your life and see fruit? Who is the last person you shared the gospel with? Are you living missionally or is your life centered around fulfilling your hopes and your dreams and the things that you like to do and maybe you just sprinkle Jesus on there when you want him? To be honest with you, if you find yourself in the latter position, it sounds like a God-fear to me, not a submitted follower. We must pursue submission. And in that, we will change our mind. We must pursue sanctification. How have you been challenged by God's spirit and his word in your life? And are you bearing fruit? All right, I'm gonna ask Eric to come forward and we're gonna get to communion because I can think of no better way to celebrate Jesus' call on our life and to reflect on where we stand with him than to think about how he paid the ultimate price for us. So if you have this, this cup, just open up the top, take out the, the bread. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant that is poured out for many. Do this in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, I come today, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come before you. Uh, Lord, I just uh, thank you so much for Jesus and man, uh, the sacrifice that he gave so that we might have right standing with you. Uh, Lord, I ask that, man, if anyone is in here that man, maybe has not crossed that uh, bridge, has not had that barrier broken down in their life, Lord, I ask that you continue to work on them. And Lord, that you would tear that barrier down in their life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.